How many of you can identify the handsome gentleman on the screen behind me here? Anybody know who that guy is? I wouldn't have been able to pick him out of a crowd either. But I tell you what, when I found this picture, I had pastoral dress envy here. Uh, I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if I could show up wearing a duvet cover and a toboggan hat, you know, for church? Uh, this is a fellow by the name of Thomas Kent. He lived back in the 1600s, and he is the one who penned the words to the hymn that we just sang, the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 350 years ago almost is when that, that hymn was written, and uh, it's become one of the more well-known hymns of all time, and even many modern hymnals have this particular song Printed in it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You know, it's just such a simple, simple um, song, but really a profound truth. And it became known as simply the doxology or doxology in many hymnals. The word doxology comes from the ancient Greek, that, and it literally means to speak the glories of. And that's what this song is all about. It's praising God, extolling His virtues, speaking highly of Him. Whenever we do that, we are, we are uh, giving a doxology, if you will. God deserves our praise. He deserves our doxologies. But you know, for those words to have the most meaning, They must be supported by a life that is consistent with the meaning of the words. And as as Christians, our lives understand that our lives can cause others to either think better of God or to think worse of Him. We should be living doxologies for God because of what He's done for us. And in 1 Peter 2, verses 9-12, through we find this principle explained in some detail. And to be honest, every phrase in this passage could stand alone as its own sermon. But for sake of time, we're going to take it all together in the study tonight and look at the big picture and the big idea. I want to begin by reading in our text, so 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse number 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. As Peter here is encouraging these believers, who many of them were living under intense persecution, to live holy lives, he emphasizes in these verses how by our righteous living, we can demonstrate God's glory. God has called us to himself out of the darkness of sin. And he has made us a very special people. We're different 
from the world in all of the best ways. And so we should not live like the rest of the world because we are not like the rest of the world. Instead, we should live lives that are virtuous, that are honorable, that are righteous, that are filled with good works that cause others to have a better opinion of God because of what they see in us. We're going to have a very simple outline tonight. We're going to look, first of all, at who we are, according to these verses, and then why we are who we are. Then we'll be reminded of what we were. And finally, we'll learn how we can be a living doxology. So number one, from the beginning of verse number nine, we learn who we are. He begins with the phrase, but ye are. He's going to describe Christians. And what he, what he gives in these next four simple statements are pictures of our identity in Christ, who we really are in Jesus. Now, for context here, verse number nine follows Peter's statement about Christ being the rock of offense in verse number eight, that those who do not believe the gospel stumble over. They stumble, stumble over the word of God in general and the gospel in particular because they refuse to be persuaded. They refuse to believe and obey the truth of the word of God. But in contrast to the unbelievers, he says, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people. We as believers, those of us who know Christ as our savior are in a whole different class Notice these four phrases here. First of all, he describes us as a chosen generation. A chosen generation. Literally, we are elect children. Now, we've already covered the doctrine of election previously in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 2. We looked at it there. But let's be reminded what this doctrine means tonight. It does not mean that some people were chosen to be saved and other people were chosen by God to go to hell and they have no recourse whatsoever. That's not the doctrine of election. The biblical doctrine of election is that God has chosen to save only those who have faith in Christ. That's election. So anyone who places their faith in Christ, and that is your choice to make, but if you make that choice and you place your faith in Christ, then God chooses to save you. Understand that, that when you place your faith in Christ, you're not being saved because you did something great. You are only being saved because God chooses to save you. There's no contradiction in this. It's God who chooses to save, and He has chosen to save only those who believe and obey the gospel. That's election. An election makes the saved person different from the lost person. That, by the way, should not become a source of pride. Anyone who takes the doctrine of election and uses it as a source of pride and have an attitude of superiority, I'm better than such and such a people, they are completely misusing and misunderstanding the biblical doctrine of election. But rather, it should humble us when we realize that God did not have to save anyone, but he chose to save us because he is a God of love and mercy. That should humble us, not make us proud. Do you really stop and think about that sometimes? I mean, what did God get when he saved you and me? What did he get out of that deal? Not a lot, right? So why did he do it? 
because he's a God of love and mercy. So we are a chosen generation. But then number two, we are a royal priesthood, he says. A royal priesthood. Now, we'll touch on this a little more in a minute, but a lot of his language here um, is rooted in Old Testament stuff. And he's writing to people who a lot of them were Jews most likely anyway, so they would have understood this imagery here. So when he talks about a royal priesthood, um, that's a little bit of of a contradiction to the Jewish mind because in the Old Testament, the kings and the priests were two different groups of people. The kings... um, you know, they were, they were one class, started out with Saul and then David and then Solomon and then split from there and you had, you had the kings, but then you had the priests who all came from the family of the Levites. But in Christ, something interesting has happened. The offices, if you will, call them that, of king and priest are now combined into one so that those who believe in Christ are both kings and priests. Twice in the book of Revelation, the saints are recorded as saying that God has made us kings and priests. Revelation 1.6 and chapter 5 verse 10. And so in Christ, that old division of separate classes of king and priests are done away with. And all the believers, here's your next blank. All the believers now constitute a kingdom of priests. That, you know what that means? That means that you can go directly to God for yourself. You do not have to rely on a human priest bringing animal sacrifices to the temple on a regular basis in order to have fellowship with God. You don't have to do that anymore. You know, in the Old Testament, it was only the high priest who could go into the Holy of Holies, and he could only go once a year, and he could only go with the blood of the sacrificial lamb. There was this division, this this, uh, barrier, if you will. But in Christ, all that has been done away. When Jesus hung on the cross, the Bible tells us that the veil in the temple, that was that big, thick curtain that separated that that most holy place from the rest of the temple. When Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was rent, was torn in half, symbolizing that the separation between man and God was done away with in Christ. Hebrews 9 and verse 12 says, Neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So we are now kings and priests. We're a royal priesthood. But then he also calls us a holy nation. A holy nation. The word for nation there is the word we get our uh, English word ethnicity from. And it means a, a particular related group of people. And what he's saying here is that regardless of our human ancestry, all believers are part of a sanctified ethnicity. We all belong to the same family, the family of God. And we belong to a new nation in Christ then. And this nation, this holy nation that we are a part of, it's not a political nation with geographic boundaries. It is a spiritual nation that spans across time and space. The saints who died 500 years ago in Europe are just as much a part of this holy nation as the persecuted Christians living in China today. That's what we are a part of, a holy nation. Our temporary residency may be in one place for us. It's Georgia. It's the United States. But our permanent residency is the eternal kingdom of God. We are a holy nation. And then finally, we are called a peculiar people. 
The word peculiar here doesn't mean weird or odd in the sense that we think of it. Somebody is, uh, you know, socially awkward or something like that. But the idea is that this word peculiar means something that is marked out as special, as different. So let me give you an example of the idea of this word here. It's like when a person puts a fence around their property. Maybe you have a fence around your property or a portion of your property. If you've got a fence along your property line, what does that fence say? It says that the dirt on this side is different than the dirt on that side because the dirt on this side is my dirt. Dirt on that side is your dirt. This is my dirt. That's what the fence means. It marks out something as special, as different. That's the idea of this word peculiar here. That is that we have been marked out as special, as different. We have been fenced off, if you will, by God Almighty. How was this done? Well, God has encircled us with his love. And by doing that, he has indicated that we are different because we belong to him. It's just just like my children. My children are peculiar. Isn't that right, Levi? Some of you are thinking, yeah, I know. We know. But in this sense, they're peculiar because they're my children. Not yours. Mine. And it's the same way with God. We are peculiar people. Why? Because we belong to Him. That's what makes us different. Titus 2.14 who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So these are the four descriptions that were given of who we are in Christ. Understand that these are not presented as ideals for us to strive for, but these are facts. This is who we really are in Christ. And all of these descriptions were used in the Old Testament in in one way or another to describe the Jewish people in particular. What's the connection here? Well, many people that Peter was writing to were displaced Jews, and they would have recognized these words and phrases. They'd been taught that the Jews were the chosen generation, that the Jews were the royal priesthood, the holy nation, and the peculiar people simply because they were Jews. In Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, it says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Sounds very much like what Peter says to all believers. And the point that Peter is making is that those descriptions are eternally true of all those who have believed and obeyed the gospel. That is who we are. God changes you. When you get saved and that change touches every part of your life, you receive a brand new identity in Christ. Understanding this, I think, is really one of the keys to Christian growth. Christians are stunted in their growth when they don't understand who they are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And the process of our life changing after salvation, sanctification we call it, is really just a process of getting the outside to match what's really on the inside. To get what's, what's in our head to match what's really in our heart as well. 
It's all about learning to become and behave like what we really are in Christ. So that's who we are. But then number two, let's talk about why we are. Why are we these things? Well, that's what the second part of verse 9 says. That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's the reason. So that you would show forth the praises of God. God has given us this new identity so we might display the excellent virtues of him who has beckoned us and drawn us out of the darkness into his light. That's what he means to show forth his praises. It's to, uh, the, the word praises here is that idea of the, the great qualities of or the excellencies of. We are to be displaying God's greatness to the world. In other words, God did not change who we are for our benefit only. The larger purpose is to demonstrate God's excellences more and more through us. And again, Peter uses language from the Old Testament here. Isaiah 43, 21 says, This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. We are supposed to be walking billboards for God. You ever seen one of those old photos of the guy standing on the corner with the sandwich signs, you know? Two signs, maybe they're advertising you know, the lunch special at the restaurant or something. Walking billboards. Well, it's kind of like what we're supposed to be, only what we're supposed to be advertising is the greatness of God. Now understand that God is not being selfish in doing this. Some people have a hard time they think, well, if God, you know, we, if, if everything's supposed to be for the glory of God, isn't God being selfish in this? When it's all about Him, as it were? Well, first of all, He's God. So if that were what He was doing, He can do it because He's God. But there's a bigger picture here. When we live this kind of a life, it not only is good for us, but it's also good for the whole world. And it glorifies God. Because life is lived best when it's lived in harmony with God. That harmony begins, first of all, when we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. And from there, we learn to say and do the things that God wants us to say and do. We learn what it means to live righteously. And if we're living righteously, then our good works will demonstrate to others how they too can be in harmony with God. It demonstrates what that means. It helps them understand who God is and helps them understand how they too can be in a right relationship with Him. And notice how Peter describes it as, as how God called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That idea of darkness and light really illustrates this. What happens when you are in the dark? No matter how tough you are, if you're in absolute darkness, there is a physical response to that where all of your senses are going to be dialed to 11. You're just, everything's going to be, you're going to be on edge, you're going to be nervous. Why? Because you can't see. You're confused. And so there's some fear that comes with that. You don't know what's around the corner. You're in the darkness. You're confused and scared. But in the light, you can know what's going on. And that brings comfort. And that brings peace. 
Now, before salvation, a person is living in spiritual darkness, which is even worse than physical darkness. They can't make sense of life, and they and that is a frightening way to live. But when the truth of the gospel is believed, they enter into the light of God. They're delivered from the power of Satan who was keeping them in ignorance and fear. They're turned to the light where they find the truth of God and that, assurance, that assures us and that calms us. Acts twenty six eighteen. In giving his testimony, Paul said that, that God told him that he was to go and preach the gospel to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. And that's what happens at salvation. We come out of the darkness into God's light. God has delivered us from darkness and light, and so we must walk in that light to demonstrate it to others. 1 John 1 talks about this, but also Ephesians chapter 5. It's the basic idea of showing forth the praises of God. Praises of God. It's walking in the light. Listen to Ephesians 5 verses 8 and 10. It says, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. When we, when our lives are characterized by goodness and righteousness and truth, that is, we're walking in the light, we are proving what is good and what is best. That's good for us, that's good for the world, and that glorifies God. He's going to go into a little more specifics in verses 11 and 12. But before doing that, before going on to specify how we can display God's uh, praises, His excellent virtues, He reminds us of what we were before God saved us. And that's verse number 10. The reminder here about what we were. Verse 10, He says again, "...which in time past were not a people," speaking to believers now, that in the time past we were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy here. Two very important contrasts here between who we were before salvation and who we are now after salvation. And by the way, this is not only what we were before salvation, it's what we still would be if it were not for salvation. There are a number of occasions in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit uses the writers of Scripture to remind believers, this is what you used to be. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, he says there, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's what every lost person is. Some in one area more than another area, but it characterizes in some way all of those who have never trusted Christ as their Savior. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11 says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Why go through such links to remind believers what they were before salvation? Is, is, is God just trying to pour salt in the wound? Is He just trying to bring up painful memories? 
for no good reason? No, there is a good reason. It's this. We cannot fully appreciate what God has done for us if we forget what He saved us from. Can't forget. Cannot forget who we were and who we would be if it weren't for God. Now, Peter focuses on just two aspects of our pre-salvation existence. First of all, he says we were not a people. In other words, we didn't belong to anything or anyone special. The only belonging was we belonged to the devil. He owned us, but that relationship was a uh, master-slave relationship that resulted in oppression and misery. That's what we were before. We weren't a people, but now we are a people. That is, we are owned by God. We are owned by God. We belong to Him. We are part of the kingdom of priests, that holy nation, that peculiar people. That's what we are. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now the second aspect of our previous condition he highlights is the fact that we were condemned. He says, Before salvation we had not obtained mercy. We were sinners by birth. We were sinners by choice. And therefore, we justly deserved the condemnation of God. Because we had not placed our faith in Christ, we were already under God's judgment. John 3.18 says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That was before salvation. We had not obtained mercy, but now... We have obtained mercy. Our punishment has been removed. We've been granted eternal pardon. We've been given the gift of eternal life. The blood of Jesus Christ has been applied and we are free from sin. Legally, there's a, uh, um, a term that is used about a person if they are charged with a crime and tried for it but are found guilty or found innocent rather it will still show up on their record that they had been charged with a crime. It'll say they were found guilty or found innocent, rather, and those sorts of things. But there's a legal thing called having your record expunged. I don't know if you've ever heard that or not, expunged. And what it means is they actually go into your records and they erase it. They get rid of it. It's gone. So if anybody comes back and says, has this person ever committed a crime? They can't find it there. It's gone. You know, that's what God has done for us in Christ. That's the level of mercy that we've received. It's not just that that our sins have been forgiven. They have been wiped out. What a joy that is. What a blessing to know that. We have obtained mercy. A moment ago, I read Titus 3.3 that discussed what we were before salvation. Verse 4, though, goes on to say, but after that. After what? After we were disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. After that, the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. That's the mercy of God. In other words, we were disowned, 
and condemned. But now we belong and we are forgiven. What more motivation do we need to show forth His praises? So now let's turn our attention to how we can best do that. Roman numeral four. How can we be a living doxology? Verse 11, he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. He prefaces instruction here with a reminder about our status as foreigners here on earth. His words echo the words of 1 Peter 1.17 where he referred to our time on earth as a sojourning. We don't really belong here on earth. And by that what we mean is it's not our permanent home. This is just a temporary place to stay. We're just waiting for the rest of eternity, waiting for heaven. We have to keep that in mind or else we might mistakenly think that the temporary things are more important than the eternal things, and they're not. We are strangers and pilgrims. That same phrase is used in Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. Remember that. We don't belong here anyway. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through, the song says. And now comes the instruction for how we can show forth God's praises. There's both a negative and a positive side to it. Let's take it in order as it's given with the negative side first. We're told in verse number 9 to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Fleshly lusts, what are those? Those are the desires we still have to do the things we shouldn't. You know, it would be really great if at the moment of salvation all of our tendencies and all of our desires and all of our temptations to sin were removed, gone, and we became sinlessly perfect at that very instant. That sounds nice, but that's not how it works. The process of eradicating our sin begins then, but it will not be complete as long as we live in a sin-cursed world and inhabit a sin-cursed body. That's why we experience frustration and pain and failure and heartache and and confusion and all of these things still. Yes, we're saved. Yes, we have the hope of the word of the word of God. We have the hope of Christ's return. We have we have all the information we need to do what God wants us to do, but it's still tough. It's still hard. And anybody who tries to sell a version of Christianity that tries to make it out like if you do what they say, life will be perfect and you'll never have another problem again. They're lying. No, the Bible says that we're still going to have to struggle against the desires of our flesh. It says here that they war against the soul. Those desires are fighting against the well-being of our soul. They make it hard for us to live righteously, but we must resist those urges and Satan's attempts to exploit our lust to tempt us to sin. Because if we give in to that, if we don't, then we are surrendering to the enemy. We're giving him permission to bring misery and pain into our lives. Don't do that. 
James chapter 1 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. But when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. That's what sin does. It destroys. That's the negative side. Abstain from fleshly lusts. But then there's the positive side. It says, Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. The word for honest here, it actually means more than just telling the truth. Telling the truth is certainly a part of it, but it's even more than that. It lives. It means living an honorable life by doing what is good and right all the time. In other words, it's not just enough to avoid doing bad things. We must actively do good things. Sometimes we get out of balance. If our quote-unquote religion is all about we don't do this, we don't do this, we don't do this, we don't do this, we don't do this. If that's what our religion amounts to, we're out of balance. Are there a lot of things we don't do? Yes, there are a lot of fleshly lusts that we abstain from. But there are a lot of things that we should be doing instead. We should be having a conversation, a lifestyle that is honorable. And in the context of our Influence in the world, it's actually more important from this standpoint of showing forth God's praises for us to do what is good. Because what unbelievers notice the most is not all the bad things that we avoid, it's the good things that we do. And in saying this, Peter is just restating the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Living living honorably will not prevent unbelievers from speaking against us. They may still speak against you as evildoers, he says in our text. But our good testimony, our testimony of good works, will stand at its own defense. That's what he says in verse number 12. They may speak against you, but don't give them any anything to work with, as it were. I'm reminded of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, it says that his enemies were looking for a reason to get him in trouble, and they concluded this, Daniel 6, 5, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Let the worst accusation that anybody could hurl against you be this, you're too good of a Christian. And when we live this kind of a life, when we have a life that's filled with good works, that display of good works will glorify God. And that's the ultimate goal of showing forth His praises. Demonstrating the excellences of God. In other words, our good works should cause people to think better about God. And they will. It'll probably cause many believers and unbelievers to think a little bit about God, but they will definitely do so when all stand before God in judgment. And that's the last phrase of verse 12. In the day of visitation, he says. And it's here that we need another reminder about having an eternal perspective. Good works are beneficial for everyone right now, no doubt about it. But they matter even more for eternity in two ways. First, when our good works are used by God to help a lost person see how good God is and they come to a saving faith in Christ, they receive the eternal benefit of salvation and God gets the glory for it. 
But even when unbelievers see our good works and reject God, our good works will be used as evidence against them at the judgment, as proof that they could have been saved and they chose not to. Either way, God gets the glory. And that's what our lives should be all about. Christians should live for God's glory. Why? Because of all that He's done for us. He's been merciful to us. He's made us His own. And because of that, we ought to abstain from fleshly lusts and we ought to live honorably. Our lives should be a living doxology. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for giving Your Son Jesus to die on the cross to save us from our sins and not just from the eternal penalty of sin, that is death and hell, but Lord, to save us from the power of sin in this life so that we might be freed to live righteously. Lord, I'm reminded what Paul said. It is our reasonable service. It only makes sense after all that you've done for us that we would live for you. Help us to do that, Lord, better and better every day. To live lives of holiness, lives of surrender, lives of service that you would get the praise and the glory through us. We ask it in Jesus' name.